Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minkin, and I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is November 4th, 2022. Earlier this week, Israeli citizens elected a new government. Benjamin Netanyahu's party, the Likud, won 32 votes, making it the largest party in Israel's Knesset and elevating Netanyahu as the next prime minister. Another big winner is the Religious Zionism Party, which won 14 seats to become the third largest party in the Knesset. Religious Zionism is expected to join Netanyahu's new new governing coalition. If you're a regular Occupied Thoughts listener, you've heard us talk about the Religious Zionism Party and its leadership, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betsalo Smotrich. We have been following and discussing the rise of their supremacist politics. Most recently, in the Occupied Thoughts episode called The Vocabulary of Oppression, Jewish Supremacy from the River to the Sea, and also in the episode called Mainstreaming the Extreme, How Mayor Kahana's Vision of Jewish Supremacy Conquered Israeli Politics. I highly recommend listening to both conversations. Other results of this week's elections include two parties that did not pass the minimum vote threshold and therefore will not be in the next Knesset. Balad, a party led by Palestinian citizens of Israel that advocates for Israel to become a state of all of its citizens. And Meretz, a party that considers itself both liberal and Zionist and that joined the last governing coalition under Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Around the world, these elections are being celebrated as an affirmation of democracy. And of course, while Israel has democratic features, it is inaccurate to call Israel a democracy. All of Israel's Jewish citizens carry full political rights wherever they live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, which is the territory that the government of Israel rules over. Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank cannot vote in these elections, and neither can most Palestinians in East Jerusalem. They are not citizens of Israel. Palestinian citizens of Israel can vote, but do not have equal political rights to those of Israel's Jewish citizens. This differing access to political rights, despite living under the same Israeli regime, is one of the reasons why human rights experts have accused Israel of committing the crime of apartheid. What follows now in this episode is a series of short interviews I did yesterday with a few of the sharpest, most insightful experts on these issues. Each interview is about 10 minutes long. You can listen to them in order or move forward and backwards to specific speakers. The order is, first, Yusuf Munayer, non-resident fellow at Arab Center DC. Next, Amjad Iraqi, editor and journalist at 972 Magazine. Then Dr. Maha Nassar, Associate Professor at the University of Arizona and non-resident fellow at FMEP, the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Then Chagai El-Ad, Executive Director of the human rights organization B'Tselem. And finally, Lar Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Huge thanks to Yusuf, Amjad, Maha, Chagai, and Lara for taking the time to speak with me and record these interviews. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. You can also find links to very useful analysis about these elections on the homepage of this podcast. Please take a look at our website, www.fmep.org. Thank you so much for listening. 
I am here with Yusuf Munair, non-resident fellow at Arab Center, Washington, D.C. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be with you. Um, I was just recalling that we did this a few elections ago, so it's. I always want to hear what you have to say um, on many topics, but especially after Israeli elections. And um, you have also been extremely prolific on on Twitter, giving a lot of analysis and and, and framing. But I want to start for our for our listening audience. Um, I want to ask you what's what's new in these election results. What's new and what's not new. Yeah, uh, you know, I think this is a great place to start because I think there there's a lot from what we've seen before, um, but there are some genuinely um, important differences um, in this uh, in this outcome. Um, you know, in, in in a lot of ways, this election has been like several of the last elections that we've seen um, in recent years. Uh, they've really been about one man, Benjamin Netanyahu, and whether or not voters think he should be prime minister or not. Um, in many ways, it's a sort of anti-ideological proposition. Um, should Netanyahu be the prime minister? It's not about whether you're a right-wing, left-wing, pro-peace, pro-annexation, whatever. Um, it's really about this one person. Uh, and so coalitions have formed around this idea. Uh, and of course, Netanyahu's allies are primarily right-wing. Um, but also some of his opponents are very much right-wing as well. Um, and so ideology has not been the major defining factor in shaping these coalitions. Um, we've also seen over the years, prior to this most recent sort of moment in Israeli politics, a sort of lane uh, in Israeli elections for the uh, uh, tough, um, uh, you know, uh, outspoken candidates that want to be more extreme than the major right-wing party, like Likud, uh, and have really pointed animus at Palestinians, at Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, and there's been political utility in taking this lane in Israeli politics for different politicians over the years, um, and for different reasons. Uh, this was sort of Avigdor Lieberman's shtick for a long while when he was thought of as the far-right ultra-nationalist, right? Um, and over time, it's a lane that for different reasons became occupied by people like Naftali Bennett, um, who had his transition in the last election, and now we see it in this most recent iteration occupied by um, the Jewish Power Party and Itamar Ben-Gvir in this sort of religious nationalist orientation. Um, and so, you know, that lane has been there for a long time and while different people have occupied it um that's not exactly new what i do think is new about this election and i think is really important is the extent to which the sort of um, quote unquote left-wing parties particularly merits and labor have been have been decimated but also the extent to which the entire electorate has shifted to the right which is partly a product of this you know, anti-ideological test around Netanyahu um, and failing to challenge the occupation and apartheid altogether. Um, and also the fact that for the first time, Netanyahu is going to be the head of a coalition which is ideologically homogeneous in a way that we have not seen uh, previously. 
um, you know, lots of different coalitions have come together with some ideological contradictions, some secularists along with some, um, you know, religious parties fighting over this issue or that, ultimately leading to the, the demise of a coalition or some other hot button issue bringing a coalition down because the, the, the groups that are on the inside can't find a way to agree to disagree. And with such narrow margins, that's all it takes to bring down a government. That dynamic is not going to exist anymore for this coalition. The homogeneity that exists now is, I think, unparalleled and is going to allow this coalition to really put forward an aggressive right-wing nationalist agenda and do so with the kind of stability that Israeli governments have not seen in many years. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, one of the, the 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 things that people have been talking about, given you just so clearly talked about how the rise of 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 the, of the far far right of 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 Ben Gvir of the Jewish Power Party as part of the Religious Zionism Party, um, that this lane has existed for a long time. This this piece is not new, but um, people who are so explicitly the, the 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 Israeli particularism is that they're Kahanist, um, but the uh, inter international political theory term we could use would be fascist um, or fascistic, uh, with fascist tendencies, depending on how how one wants to describe them. Um, people have been talking about that 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 we're facing now a test internationally uh, about how normalized these this party will be as part of the Israeli government. So I wanted to ask you, and, and, and one of the questions is expectations from the Biden administration or from other international parties, uh, international bodies for how they will receive um, this party, the, that Israeli far right party as ministers in, in the Israeli government. So I wanted to ask you what your expectations are really, uh, what, are the, what are the actions or the, or the tests that you're watching that you're keeping your eye on? Yeah, I think, you know, just on this on this idea of the lane being on 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 the, the right end of the spectrum, if we understand that that lane has sort of also always existed um, and also understand that the center of political gravity in Israel over time has only moved rightward. Right. Um, it logically follows that whatever is in that far right lane is going to be more right than the previous iteration of it. So at some point. We're, we're going to get to unabashed fascists and Kahanists, and that's what we're that's what we're seeing now, right in that lane. Um, as far as how the you know international community responds to this, how Washington responds to it, um, look, <laughs> the international community in Washington in particular has found a way to pretend that Israeli democracy exists even as apartheid has been entrenched, even as millions of Palestinians continue to be denied the right to vote. Even as the situation on the ground for anyone who is an objective observer looks nothing like democracy. Um, so, you know, a big part of me thinks that uh, it's pretty likely that um, they're going to con continue the game. They're going to continue to pretend. I think there are some scenarios in which that becomes harder, that pretending becomes harder. And a lot of that has to do with how Netanyahu and his coalition decide on handling. U.S.-Israel relations. Some of the big questions that I have, um, how uh, involved 
does Netanyahu plan to make himself in American domestic politics? I think that's going to have a lot to do with shaping his relationship with um, the Biden administration and Democrats moving forward. Knowing his history, it doesn't bode very well, right? Um, and I think the other question is, where does someone like Ben Gvir end up in the government? Um, and is it in a portfolio that um, comes comes into contact with um, uh, international officials as well, uh, uh, regularly? Um, if he gets some kind of minor position or some internal facing position, uh, which doesn't really have to interface with the outside world very much, um, then you can see that perhaps mitigating the conflict. Um, but if he gets some kind of elevated portfolio, and it's really hard to tell right now how that's going to all shake out, um, that's that's going to be much more, I think, contentious. Um, but I, I lean in the direction of thinking that the United States has become very good at ignoring problems on the ground um, in Israel and Palestine, and um, that's the comfort zone that they might easily revert back to. And I just, I'm sorry, one more thing yeah. I would add here on this point. Um, I think a lot, a, a lot of it will have to do with how the American Jewish community reacts to this situation. Um, because uh, particularly among Democrats, a lot of the cues around the U.S.-Israel relationship comes from that constituency. Uh, and I think, you know, there, there is some dissonance now that you're hearing from routine supporters of Israel around how to handle this situation. Um, some are willing to continue to play the game and say that Israel is America's lone, amazing, wonderful uh, democratic ally in the Middle East, and no matter what, that'll always be the case. But others are starting to recognize that um, it's, hard, it's hard to spin fascism. Uh, and um, Ben-Gvir is going to make that very, very difficult. Um, so how that conversation evolves in the American Jewish community, I think, is going to shape a lot of the U.S. response um, to this latest iteration of the Israeli government. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for that that last um, piece in addition. A specific Ben Gvir related question. Um, if he does get the Ministry of Internal Security and oversees the police, is that internal facing or is that international facing? Well, it's sort of both, right? I mean, in, uh, you know, I think it's important to remember who this person is, right? This is, this is someone who the uh, Israeli state convicted for incitement and support for a terror organization. This is someone who the Israeli military considered too extreme to enlist, right? Um, and, and this is a person who's going to be in charge of you know, internal security, um, it's, it's, like, it's like making an arsonist the fire chief. That's exactly what it is. And um, at, at, at some point, there's going to be a conflagration, which might start internally, but will become impossible for the international community to ignore. So while it might be internal facing, it's going to have external implications. Um, and I think He's itching for that opportunity. Everything about his background, his history, um, you know, suggests that that's exactly what he's gunning for. Thank you. Yes, I think that's very um, helpful and important to to hear and, and to think about, and also just to remember where he was 
uh, I think it was last May when he was setting up offices in Sheikh Jarrah as a way of 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 instigating um, conflict and 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 uh, and trying to create something larger. That's part of the accelerationism um, or the arson, as you as you said. Um, so my my last question for you is is um, what message do you have for your for your allies for other activists um, both here in the U.S. where you and I both are, and and also in in Palestine and in Israel. I mean, I think this is an important wake up call for a lot of folks who thought that the previous government was some sort of answer, uh, or some sort of silver lining, or opportunity to even take a take a breath. Um, this is what we're seeing today is the result of a ongoing rightward march that has been underway for years uh, and is sort of the inevitable outgrowth of, of a clash between Zionism and the native Palestinian population. Until that is fundamentally dealt with, it's hard to see this going in a different direction, moving away from a continued march to, to the extreme. Um, and, you know, it cannot, the, the, the response from the, from the Israeli political parties who have contested Netanyahu in re recent years has been to do so while ignoring the fundamental problem, while ignoring apartheid, while ignoring occupation, and just try to make this about Netanyahu, the person, his legal issues, and you know this idea of an Israeli political system in which Palestinians either don't uh, exist um, or um, you know or shouldn't exist, right? Um, that failed. That failed spectacularly, uh, and I think there needs to be some major questions now about what is the right path forward. Um, and I, I think it's pretty clear from this experience um, that ignoring occupation, ignoring apartheid um, is not it. Uh, in fact, that has to be dealt with head on for there to be any real challenge to the direction that Israeli politics are heading. Thank you so much, Yusuf. This has been so helpful. It is always so good to hear your thoughts and your analysis, and um, I am so grateful. So thank you. Yeah, it was great to do it. I'm here with Amjad Iraqi. Amjad is an editor and writer at 972 Magazine and a policy analyst at the think tank Al Shabaka. He was previously an advocacy coordinator of the legal center Adala. Amjad, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you let's start with uh, with the question of what's new in these elections? Um, I think one particular thing I would highlight. Um, I know a lot of people are kind of discussing the kind of the rise of the uh, Kahanism in this election and the return of you know King Baby, but I think a very important issue that also needs to be looked at is actually this refragmentation of the Arab political parties in the Knesset. Um, so there are basically four main. Uh, uh, Arab parties representing Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, and for about six years, these, these parties had been together in the United Slate called the Joint List. And at one point, were even the third largest uh, slate in the Knesset with about 15 seats uh, not too long ago. 
but as I'm sure some of our audiences might know, uh, about a year or so ago, one of the parties, the Islamist Ra'am, led by Mansour Abbas, broke away from the list and sort of offered his party's recommendation for prime minister and to be part of the coalition uh, to any kind of political um, uh, constellation that emerged. And he ended up becoming a member of the Bennett Lapid coalition that lasted for about a year. Uh, now, this caused quite a huge schism uh, in Palestinian politics in Israel for many reasons. Uh, but what we've seen ever since then is a continuing breakdown and disintegration of the consensus that once bound the Palestinian political parties in Israel, whereby uh, once the idea was that if Palestinian parties were to ally with, for example, Zionist parties in the Knesset, it would usually be with the center left. And here you had uh, Ra'am deciding, uh, kind of also breaking through kind of traditional protocol by saying we would go with someone like Bennett of the far right party, we would go with someone like Yir Lapid and this kind of center right politics. Um, and that has really set the trend for this continuing demise of this, of this consensus. And then what ended up happening just a few weeks ago is that Ra'am, of course, ran by itself, uh, but then uh, Hadash, Ta'al, and uh, Balad. Uh, which are like uh, kind of communist, liberal, and nationalist parties, broadly speaking, uh, also split uh, further. There was a lot of infighting. Belad ended up uh, running by itself, and at least so far, has still come short under the electoral threshold, while both Ra'am and Hadash Ta'al have now only got uh, five seats each. And there's a lot to unpack from all this, but it's the fact that what was once a united front of Palestinian citizens, uh, with all its flaws, uh, have now kind of returned to this sort of situation where they were about a decade ago, where they have now these kind of minuscule parties that are very divided ideologically, very divided by uh, political clashes at a time when the far right and the Israeli right and center right are really coalescing around a very hostile political agenda, especially putting Palestinian citizens in the crosshairs. So it's been quite an alarming and dangerous trend that we're seeing. Thank you, Amjad. So uh, on that hostile political agenda of, of, of the far right, um, it's a hostile political agenda towards Palestinian citizens and a hostile political agenda towards Palestinians overall um, from, from the river to the sea. And so I, I wanted to ask you um, one of the questions, one of, the, one of, the, uh, one of the, the things that people are talking about now is, is what it looks like to normalize or to not normalize uh, these extremists in in, uh, in in the governing coalition and potentially in in uh, receiving ministries, Smotrich in a ministry, Ben Gvir in a ministry, others. Um, what are you watching for? What what are the what are the tests? What are you keeping your eye out uh, for right now? I think it's very important to kind of push back against this idea that. Uh, that Kahanism and that the members of the religious Zionism uh, slate are somehow an anomaly and something that is this kind of exception to the rule. Uh, and there are at least two levels to, uh, to argue as to why this is not the case. One is that you cannot think about the rise of Kahanism or the rise of people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir without understanding Benjamin Netanyahu. So for the 12 years that he was prime minister and it seems is returning again, uh, Netanyahu was very much this kind of gatekeeper for an ongoing rightward shift in Israeli politics and providing increasingly right-wing parties and thinkers and leaders, uh, basically offering them uh, the state apparatus to keep pushing it in that direction. And as that gatekeeper, he actually opened those gates wide open for figures like this. A decade ago, someone like Avigdor Lieberman was once considered 
uh, very far right. That became followed by Naftali Bennett, who was considered even further right. And now we have people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir, who are even further, further right. Um, and so, and all this has to be understood with Netanyahu, not just Netanyahu himself, but the Likud party, which is not only the largest party in the Israeli uh, electorate, but is very much mainstream. And now has almost turned itself into this like center-right party, as opposed to a very right-wing party. And so this, um, this connection with these other uh, political factions in this, um, on the landscape is very crucial to understand that you cannot have one without, without these other constellations uh, in the system. And a second level to understand this is that the ideological underpinnings that guide religious Zionism, that guide the Otzma Yehudit uh, Jewish Power Party, people like Ben Vir, is also in many ways a natural continuation of the core ideology of the state and of Zionism in particular. Now, what do I mean by this? Uh, in Israel, the inherent underlying um, philosophy is the concept of a Jewish state. And even though there are different kinds of spectrums between the so-called Zionist left and the Zionist right and all these shades in between, it is still, it is still um, underwritten by this idea of Jewish privilege, if not Jewish supremacy and Jewish domination, whichever version and however kind of pieces of democracy you want to add to it, this is the core about an ethno-racial superiority that exists. It exists against Palestinians, not only outside the state, but of course, Palestinians who even have Israeli citizenship. And that has always been the case uh, throughout Zionism's, uh, uh, through much of political Zionism's vision and also through the Israeli state's establishment. And so when you really look at uh, what, religious, what religious Zionism is espousing, it is not a far stretch what they are, uh, what they are calling for in terms of the kind of entrenchment of Jewish supremacy, uh, which has always been the case in the state, but just to say, let's make it clearer. Let's not be, let's not varnish this. Let's not actually have to kind of polish it too much. And this is, and you're actually seeing it not just as sort of an abstract concept, but the very fact that someone like Ben Gvir was able to rally along with Smotrich, you know, 15 seats, making him the largest party in the Knesset. What we've seen in these past few months is that he's able uh, to uh, rally people who are even considering themselves in the center right, precisely because his message resonates, his ideology resonates. He's basically saying, let's just go the whole way through. Don't stop at this midway. And this was very much the same kind of um, sort of ideological argument that was made by people like Lieberman, by people like Netanyahu, by people like Bennett, and is now just being pushed further by people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich. And so that, um, so that kind of thinking cannot be separated from the core of the identity. It was almost inevitable that you would get characters like this. It is not an anomaly. It is not some far-flung kind of uh, extreme fringe group. There is an underlying current which allows that party to connect with much of mainstream Israeli society today. And that makes him normalized, that makes that kind of thinking completely normalized. Um, and in that respect, we cannot, uh, we cannot separate it from that wider context. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate your, um, your explanation of this, of this continuum uh, and of, of, of how we should be, how we can be imagining and understanding the emergence of this party and of their power and and um, and and these extremists as in, in some ways more of a a boiled down essence of um, of what of what you're describing of this this broader identity and broader politics. Um, thank you for all of that. So, uh, what message do you have then um, for your audience in America, or for your audience internationally, but but for your audience in the U.S. 
The key thing is again to under to keep the analysis centered on the core of what uh, Israel's uh, state and society is about. It's very easy right now to just focus on Ben Gvir and to focus on religious Zionism and to try to say that as long as we keep them out of government and keep them out of the mainstream, that that is what the most important objective. It's certainly a very crucial one, but it is by no means uh, addressing the real issue. And it's not enough just to even talk about Netanyahu himself. The very fact that even you have center-right uh, parties that are allying or that are even espousing many of these kind of right-wing views, whether it's about vis-a-vis -vis Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinians in the occupied territories, about the vision of entrenching apartheid in some form or another, or Jewish supremacy or the nation-state law. All these have a very broad consensus across the spectrum. So it is crucial to analyze that and to see and to understand that wider context. And the second very crucial issue is to understand that this is not just some, that our resistance and our movement to this cannot be just as conceived as trying to reform uh, uh, Israel's political Zionism and just trying to maintain a softened version of a Jewish state. The very inherent uh, building blocks of this regime requires supremacy, require, requires racial dominance, uh, whether you're a citizen or an occupied subject or a refugee. And so in order to contribute to the movement, you need to you need to ally with the camp that is promoting true equality as it should be, that is promoting a true end to the occupation as it should be, that is really pushing for an anti-apartheid movement, an anti-colonial movement. And that camp is led by Palestinians, by Palestinian activists on the ground, by Palestinian thinkers and writers, by Palestinian leaders who are trying to realign our movements, not as sort of a an Israeli reformist movement and the Palestinian movement here, no, there needs to be a common aligned movement and to understand that Palestinians have been articulating the dangers that Zionist ideology can, can lead to, articulating the dangers of where Israeli politics is leading to and how impunity inherently empowers these very fascistic trends in the Israeli political spectrum. The idea that, uh, that uh, the international community needs to be easy on Israel in order to make them make better choices is absolutely proven wrong. The more impunity Israel's enjoyed over the past decade, the more emboldened it feels to go even further and further. So that's a very crucial element to uh, take into account. Fabulous, Amjad, thank you. Uh, not fabulous, but fabulous. Thank you for your clarity. Um, thank you for your urgency. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I'm, I'm so grateful, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Here with Dr. Maha Nassar. Maha is an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona, and she is also non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Maha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start by asking you what is new and what is not new in these election results. Well, not new is Netanyahu. This is now, he's he was already the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history, and he's going to now extend that run. Um, the new, a, a new name and a new person that we've been hearing a lot more about is Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the head of the religious Zionist party that received the third largest uh, share of Knesset seats. Uh, he's been someone that Palestinians in particular have been having their eye on for quite some time even though he might be a newer name to some of the um, uh, our podcast listeners. 
So Ben Gavir has been part of a rapidly growing movement of extremist religious Zionists. And I don't think it's a coincidence that his party's name is religious Zionism. And so these extremist religious Zionists have for quite a while now been seeking to impede Muslim access to Jerusalem and especially access to the Haram Sharif or the Temple Mount. And there are some elements within this movement that even wish to destroy the mosques that are there, the Dome of the Rock and the Aqsa Mosque, in order to replace them with the third Jewish temple. So these movements have also been under a lot of people's radars for a long time, but a lot of the news we've been hearing over the past couple of years, for example, about Israeli police attacking Muslim worshipers at the Aqsa Mosque compound, are in fact a direct result of incitement by members of some of these movements, and oftentimes Ben Gavir is in the midst of it. So for example, a few weeks ago, just in October, Ben Gavir was one of several extremist settlers who stormed the courtyards of the Aqsa Mosque under the protection of Israeli police and in clear violation of the agreements between Israel and the Jordanian Waqf authorities who are responsible for the administration of, that, of the compound. And then last year, when we heard about Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah defending their homes from being taken over by Israeli settlers, those confrontations, which were coupled with a march of extremists in Jerusalem, and that led to the latest Israeli war on Gaza. So while all of that was happening, again, Ben Gavir was in the midst of it. At the time, the police commissioner, Kobi Shabtai, placed blame for the outbreak of violence directly on him. And saying, quote, the person responsible for this intifada is Itamar Ben-Gavir, unquote. So, and that was because Ben-Gavir had moved his parliamentary office to Sheikh Jarrah, which incited uh, Jewish settlers to be even more um, violent in their attempt to take over the East Jerusalem neighborhood. So there's a lot of talk right now about Ben-Gavir entering the government, um, entering Netanyahu's coalition. There's some hope, I think, in some quarters that he'll somehow be shut out. But either, we, either way, I think we're going to see an increase in these incendiary moves. And I think this increases the likelihood of further armed conflict and not just with Gaza. So while I don't think we'll see a regional war erupting on behalf of protecting Palestinians as its sole cause, I think that if there is a real fear in the Arab and Muslim worlds that the Aqsa Mosque itself is under threat, then I can see Muslims all over the world pushing their governments to do something, which could in fact lead to a wider war. I've also noticed a line of analysis in the Arab world that were there to be a regional war or a regional armed conflict, that Israel's traditional superiority in weapons, both conventional and nuclear, wouldn't be as effective against some of these newer, smaller weapons like drones. So the Iranian drones that we've been hearing about in Ukraine, for example, could potentially be used against Israel. Now, I'm not a military expert, so I don't know for sure I can't evaluate these claims. But it seems to me that Israeli military officials are also exercising caution. That would explain why the Lapid government agreed to US-mediated talks with Lebanon about the maritime border with Israel and refrained from unilateral actions until an agreement was reached. And so I don't know that a Netanyahu government with or without Ben Gavir would be a circumspect. Great, thank you for all of that, Maha. That was very helpful. So, um, what what are you keeping your eye on? Like as the as as 
as we see, we're going to see what this government is and, and becomes, and we'll know more obviously in the coming days. Um, but but what are you watching? What are the trends? One thing I'm watching with quite a bit of interest, I'm sure I'm not the only one watching this. I'm watching um, the reaction among American supporters of Israel, Jewish American supporters in particular, but sort of supporters more broadly, both inside and outside the beltway. So for example, I noticed quite a bit of alarm coming out of the Washington Institute, which is a traditional pro-Israel think tank. Uh, yesterday, Dennis Ross and David Makovsky wrote that they feared that a Netanyahu government, especially with Ben Gavir in the coalition, would strain U.S.-Israeli relations. They noted that Abdullah bin Zayed, the foreign minister of the UAE, had warned Netanyahu during a trip to Israel before the election that the inclusion of Ben Gavir and Smotrich, the co-leader of that um, religious Zionism party, would affect the relationship with the Emirates. So I think there's a lot of concern that the Abraham Accords that people in Washington have been spending a lot of political capital to shore up uh, and are already under threat. They're increasingly unpopular in the Arab world. So I think there's a real possibility that those are going to fall through altogether. There's also a lot of concern that uh, progressives and other liberal Americans who have been increasingly critical of Israel and accusing it of apartheid, of Jewish supremacy, of discrimination, that those voices will get louder and will be taken more seriously when you have someone as blatantly racist as Ben Gavir in government. But I'm also interested in the intra-Jewish conversations that are happening as well. I was reminded, as I was thinking about Jerusalem in particular, I was reminded about what happened last summer when three young American Jews went to the uh, part of the Western Wall for their bar and bat mitzvahs, and they were yelled at and called names by a group of ultra-Orthodox Haredi teenage youth. And it was a very trying experience, certainly for the young people involved, but I think for the wider American Jewish community as well. The U.S. Special Envoy on Antisemitism, Deborah Lipstadt, tweeted at the time that she was deeply disturbed by the troubling actions of a group of extremists at the Kotel. And she also, and I think this part was really interesting, she continued, and I'm quoting here, let us make no mistake, had such a hateful incident, such incitement happened in any other country, there'd be little hesitation in labeling it antisemitism, unquote. Similarly, ADL condemned the actions. I imagine there was a lot of uh, back channel and private communication happening between members of the American Jewish leadership and the Israeli government to try to rein in these youth. I think in the current government, those youth are not going to be reined in. And if anything, it's going to exacerbate the kinds of splits that we're already seeing, not only between the right in Israel and liberal American Jews, but also within Israeli Jewish society itself between liberal or secular or non-practicing Jews and those who think that there's only one way to practice Judaism. So on top of all of the incitement and violence that's going to probably fall on Palestinians, there's also, I think, a huge likelihood that we're going to see intra-Israeli, Jewish-Israeli violence happening as well. 
Thank you um, for all of that. Um, so uh, my last question for you is, um, what's the takeaway of, if you were to give one, one message to an American audience, um, mm -hmm. whether that be your, your students or every, everyone listening here, what do you think are the, is the most important thing people need to know to take away from these elections? I think the most important thing for everyone, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of what you think about Israel up until now, I think the most important thing to know is that any pretense of the United States and Israel sharing liberal values, that era is over. I would have said it was over a long time ago, but certainly now I don't think there's any doubt and I don't think there's any real cause or reality to say, as many in the Beltway often do, that the United States and Israel have a set of shared values implying sort of shared liberal values. I think that era is over. I don't think it's ever coming back. Thank you, Maha. Very powerful to hear you and to, to hear your words. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chagai, for being here. I'm here with Chagai El-Ad, Executive Director of B'Tselem. Chagai, thank you. I wanted to ask you first, what's new in these elections? Yeah, so first, uh, thanks for, for having me. Um, maybe the first thing that I would say that, like what happened, I think, shouldn't be normalized, but it also shouldn't be exceptionalized, right? And in that sense, like maybe I'll begin by saying that what is new is that things that have been postponed but have been there for quite some time have been exposed, but they haven't been created, right? So for instance, like the key fact that there is, there is a solid right-wing majority in the Jewish public in Israel, that is a fact. Uh, and in a way, and it's way bigger than, you know, 61 out of 120. This is not a question about like, you know, a fraction of a tenth of a percent of whether, you know, merits is above the threshold or below the threshold, right? The fact is, and you can see it like in the results of elections repeatedly in, in recent years and public opinion polling and everything else, is that there is a solid right-wing majority any day in the Jewish public and in the Knesset. It's true that in recent years, because of the skirmishes around, around Netanyahu's personal issues of, of corruption and the trial and so on, have you know, created this weird situation that even though the right-wing majority was there, Netanyahu was having trouble forming you know, a, a stable coalition government. But the majority has always been there and the majority is there now. And by the way, the majority of right-wing uh, parliamentarians is even bigger than Netanyahu's likely coalition because you have, you know, let's not forget, you know, Israel Beitenu is a right-wing party, uh, part of, uh, you know, the, the Gantz uh, political party is, you know, is Gidon Saar, like, you know, from Likud and so on. So it's way bigger than the, you know, 64, 65 seats that are going to be on, on Netanyahu's current, current government. Um, 
people had a time to somehow distance themselves from like seeing that that fact, but it has been there and it remains there, and it's not going to change anytime soon. Thank you. Uh, when right after the elections happened, um, right after the results came out, you 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 tweeted that with the rise of the of the Jewish Power Party. Uh, the quiet part of Israel's regime of Jewish supremacy over Palestinians has never been louder. Can, will you just explain to our audience what you mean by Israel's regime of Jewish supremacy and and what is the quiet part and what is the loud part? Yeah, so maybe the word quiet wasn't that that accurate because I think that, you know, Israeli uh, oppression of Palestinians has never has never been quiet, right? Uh, but perhaps what, what I really meant was that it's going to become now more blunt and perhaps less less sophisticated, uh, and that that is a you know both a danger and in a way an, an opportunity. You know, I'll be happy to try and, and, and speak about about both. But I mean, first, like I mean, let's imagine a, you know a scenario in which uh, this government is going to. Uh, Shut down Palestinian civil society organizations, right? That would be an extreme step. But let's not pretend we've forgotten that that has begun under the outgoing, reasonable, liberal, digestible government, right? Let's imagine a future in which, you know, the Palestinian communities in Masafariata get, you know, communities get demolished and people are forcibly transferred, right? Um, it would be horrific, but who laid the groundwork for that? The previous government, right? Uh, the you know Benville's party has this bill to provide um, blanket impunity to Israeli soldiers that that kill Palestinians, right? I mean, it's it, it, it's horrific, but let's not pretend that we don't know that there is de facto impunity, right? It's just done in a more, more sophisticated way through you know this you know, circus of investigations that go over a very long time. But at the end of the day, that's what the data shows, right? So what, what I'm trying to, to, to point out is that things that already have been at play, uh, there's no reason to think that they're, they're going to stop. And they have been at play under governments that were considered to be reasonable or less reasonable, uh, left, right, and center, right? What is potentially different, and this is like in, in two ways. One is let's not forget that things can get worse, right? And I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that in, 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 in lightly, right? Things are terrible, but things can get way worse, and we should we should remember that. Um, but in that in that tweet, what I was thinking about was this shift to ways of continuing with the same processes that we're familiar with, but doing it in, in, in a fashion that would be faster, uh, cruder, and less, uh, and less sophisticated. Uh, and in that sense, like, just like making away with, uh, uh, with the decor and with the effort to make things uh, digestible. And there, I said before, opportunity. So, I, I mean, it could be, but it really depends depends on us because I mean one could assume that once the the decor is is gone, then the the, the deniability that gives I don't know uh, 
people of, of good faith uh, in various countries around the world and elected officials and parliamentarians and foreign governments and so on. So suddenly they would have so much less deniability in continuing to look the other way or say that this is reasonable or pretend that their lame statements would actually make a difference uh, in the face of something so, so blunt. Uh, that is uh, a hope, an aspiration, maybe like an assumption. Uh, but we should remember that Israel already had in the past, you know, governments that were completely right wing, and one thought, "I'm that person, I'm that one," that 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 kind of clarity would bring about consequences, and there was oceans of clarity, and there were no consequences, right? Um, so I, I'm not taking that for granted. I think it's incumbent on us to, to make that point and to come up with these demands. I'm just thinking that as things are more in the open, right, that it would, I would assume that our ability to engage effectively and, to de and make demands for action, not you know, in years to come, but, but yesterday, uh, that, that, that we would be able to do that in a fashion that would be much more uh, assertive uh, and convincing and certainly seizing the moral, the moral high, high ground, right? In other words, just like to, to conclude this long answer, that, you know, in, in an apartheid reality that, you know, doesn't begin with a new government, it's been in place for, for quite some time, but in an apartheid reality that makes so much less efforts to, to hide itself and to pretend that it's a normal democracy, then yeah, we have a fighting chance to expose this reality for what it is and, and demand consequences in ways that may become more direct uh, than they were uh, when there was more efforts to serve you know, pretense and decor. Thank you, Chagai. So then this is your message, this, the opportunity, the possibilities, the fighting chance you just described. I, I, I imagine that's, that's, that's your message for your allies. At, at home and abroad. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I just also just repeat and say that like this has been the demand before, right? No, no one should have been you know waiting for the terrible things to come or for you know Israeli government that has such a blunt you know ultra nationalist fascist racist political party uh, in such in such positions as is the seems to be the, the the obvious outcome of these of these elections like no one should have waited for any of, of these things the reality is sufficiently horrible as it is and sufficiently clear as it is and anyone can recount numerous moments uh, in the you know decades of oppression of of palestinians that you know would have demanded so much more action, right? I'm, you know, I'm thinking about 2014 in 2014 in Gaza, for instance. You know, hundreds of dead children. Uh, there are so many other terrible moments, right? And uh, and, and of course, also they they add up. They add up to Israel's ability to completely transform the reality between the river and the sea, uh, as as Jewish Israelis have been doing for so many for so many decades. Um, but I I think with with without becoming ahistoric while acknowledging all that uh, to also take a look at what has now become even more crystal clear uh, 
and 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 do the legwork that that we should do to try and push against that in the most effective way that that we can and with a sense of urgency Hagai, thank you so much thank you for your clarity thank you for your um for your clarity and your analysis and uh your urgent urgent message i'm grateful thanks for taking the time thank you very much I'm here with Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Laura, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Sarah. So let's start with what's new and what's not new in these elections. Look, I mean, what's new is you now have really the mask torn off the Israeli political scene. Um, the, the fact is, and I'm, I'm sure other people you're talking to will talk about the fact that Kahanism has largely been normalized. It's become part of the 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 the, the weave uh, or woven into Israeli politics now for years. Where even the most centrist governments, if you if you do what I do and periodically take out one of Meyer Kahane's books and and read through it, you're like, wow, this sounds a lot like what the so-called centrists are saying today. So, I mean, Kahanism was already present and normalized. Um, in in the Israeli political system, what's different now is you have really the 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 masks off and the unabashed, um, you know, the 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 folks who 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 will take the sharper edges of Kahanism and point them <laughs> into the Israeli body politic um, at the people they don't like, um, and they've been doing that for years, and and now they are going to be in positions of greater power to do that. Great, thank you, Lara. Um, you've talked before about your your uh, affinity for reading Kahana and getting to know him deeply. When we did that that webinar on Kahana Kahanism and how it became mainstream, um, yep. so okay, as we're moving into this this new world, masks are off, Kahanist elbows are in. Um, what are you what are you watching? What are you keeping your eyes on? And and what do you think is most important for people to 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 be watching right now? I think that the important thing to watch is is what you should have been watching all along, which is the the erosion of any pretense of respect for human rights, civil rights, um, legal rights of Palestinians, um, certainly in the occupied territories, but also increasingly inside the green line. Um, that's what people should have been paying attention to already. Um, the the failure of the world to to pay attention and to hold um, Israel accountable as it veered further and further into Kahanist style um, policies, um, which have been going on obviously for, for more than 50 years, is, is why we're here today, right? Um, so to the extent that we are now in a, a different game, it's not an entirely new game, but people need to keep their eye on the ball. There are people on the ground on both sides of the green line that stand to be targeted even more to tomorrow than they were yesterday. And yesterday they were already targeted. It's worth remembering that it was under the more moderate government that we just lost, or Israel just lost, that you had Israel declare six Palestinian NGOs, including the most prominent Arab human rights NGO in the region, uh, to be terrorist organizations. It was under the last government that you had zero accountability 
demanded or provided for the death of a, an American citizen who was a journalist or an American citizen elderly man, or the, the tens of Palestinians killed every month, or the, the raging settler violence, which is supported by the IDF, that's already happening. You know, looking at where things can go, I mean, it doesn't, you know, it, it, people, nobody, nobody enjoys a slippery slope argument warning where things could go. It, it's, it, it's, it's immediately dismissed as, as not relevant, it's like, or, or so if, especially if it's things people don't want to hear. I think it's, if you look at the here and now, it's, it's terrible. If you take people like Ben Gvir at their word, they intend to make it much worse. They intend to harness the existing political trends and some of the legislation which has been passed. And let's remember the Supreme Court, not a couple of months ago, um, essentially gave the green light for Israel to take away the citizenship of quote unquote disloyal Arab citizens or disloyal citizens writ large, but it's clearly aimed at Palestinians. It's not aimed at the broader population, although who knows, maybe it'll be used against leftists as well, right? Um, but I mean, he's been very clear, you know, the, we, we are the landlords here in this country. And if you're disloyal, we're going to, you're going to get you out. Um, as, as um, you know, there's a, a commentator, there's a discussion on Twitter, or I think earlier today or yesterday, about whether the new government is going to be more of the same, you know, we exchange one pro-apartheid government for another pro-apartheid government. And uh, an academic in the UK named Ayer Wallach commented, we've actually exchanged a pro-apartheid government for, I believe he said, a pro-expulsionist government. And, and, and you need to pay attention. People are telling you who they are and what they intend to do. Um, so if, if you want to figure out what to watch for, listen to what they say they're going to do. You've said that for a long, long time, that people will tell you, listen to what they say they're going to do. So uh, on that matter, um, we are now a few days ahead of the U.S. elections. What are you um, thinking about people telling you what they do, doing what they say they're going to do or what they say they're going to do? How are you thinking about the U.S. elections and, and the intersection with Israel-Palestine and, and this new Israeli government? I mean, uh, speaking as someone who follows very far right-wing Twitter and listservs and everything else. Um, I, I have to, I have to believe that on the right within and, and within the Republican caucuses in Congress, that the the victory of Bibi is clearly seen as a victory for their cause. I mean, the the Republicans were very comfortable with Bibi. He is their guy. Ted Cruz tweeted out something very positive about, "Well done, Israel, for reelecting Bibi." Um, you know, Nikki Haley tweeted out something approving, along of course with Viktor Orban and you know the the usual suspects who who are very happy with this new government. Um, but you know, to the extent that the U.S. is is facing its own battle um, between very uh, you know. I want to say liberals. I mean, between a, a side that is relatively progressive um, and and having some trouble holding its own, and a surging illiberal movement, which is tapping into the most ultra nationalistic, xenophobic, tribalist, racist trends in American society, I think you have a lot of common cause. And you know, assuming that that we see the the light, it seems very likely that Democrats are going to lose at least the House and also maybe the Senate. I mean, I, I, I think one should prepare themselves for um, a Congress where um, standing with an illiberal Israeli government shoulder to shoulder 
is, is absolutely what, what you will see. And you would probably see that anyway. Again, we've seen this already, even when you have Democrats in the House and Senate and progressives, you've seen a fair amount of standing shoulder to shoulder, no matter what Israel does. Again, impunity is why we're here. Um, but you know, impunity on steroids, um, for the past two years, it's been in the interests of democratic leaders to not have a lot of fights about Israel. Um, particularly in the House, because it doesn't look good for them when their own party is fighting about this. That's something that Republicans use against them. That won't be the case probably in the next Congress. And if people are looking to the White House, hoping that the White House will stand in the way of, of really problematic moves in Congress that are framed as pro-Israel, uh, I think there's going to be a problem there because I think you're you're already seeing the legacy Jewish American organizations making clear that they are going to work really, really hard to stand by Israel no matter what Israel says or does, right? This is about shared values, which really tells us a lot about what those values are. And in parallel, you've got a White House, which is it, the, the hallmark of its time in office so far has been avoiding any conflict with Israel. I don't, I don't see that mentality changing. And on top of that, they're in, they're going to be in their own election cycle as of next week. They already are to some extent, but as of next week, we're in full-on presidential election cycle. And, and we saw what happened with the Israel issue and APAC and United Democracy Project and the role that it played is playing in this election cycle. I can't imagine um, the Democratic Party or the White House want to, want to do anything that they think will make them more vulnerable to those attacks, which of course doesn't matter because they'll still be attacked by the right as insufficiently pro-Israel or as anti-Semitic, no matter what they do. That's, that's the reality. Um, so they, they end up losing the initiative to actually have a responsible uh, visionary leadership kind of policy, and then they're still attacked. So lose-lose. Do you see any opportunity here in this new government? I mean, I, I'd be curious to actually hear what my Palestinian colleagues um, on the ground would say about that. I, I think that the, you know, it, it starts to feel a little bit weak as Israel elects each time a more openly racist, openly pro-settlement government to say, okay, fine, at least we have clarity. Um, and, and, you know, it's sort of like, you know, well, maybe this is as bad as it can get. And I, I, I hesitate when people say things like that because it, it always seems like it can get worse for the people who are at the sharp end of the stick. Um, but it is clarity. And, and to some extent, you know, the, there's a lot of questions now about, you know, what it will mean to normalize or not normalize Ben Gvir. And it's like, you know, I have to say for me, the idea that this is going to be some sort of test, will the international community, you know, we'll, we'll deal with the government, but we won't meet with Ben Gvir. I mean, that's, that's really performative garbage. The fact is you're still going to be dealing with a government that whose policies are, 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 are imbued with the philosophy of Ben Gavir. That's why he's there. And they already were imbued with those, 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 those ideas. The fact that you somehow can pat yourself on the back because you're spending political capital to say, I won't stand in the same room with that guy, even though I will basically support his cause and, and normalize what he's doing um, is, is pretty empty. I, I feel like that's the line that people are setting out. And I feel like it's a line that, that absolutely will not hold. <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm very skeptical that certainly in the U.S. that line will hold for more than a day. Um, but even if it does, it isn't meaningful. Um, I mean, Bibi in his previous rounds in office 
has done everything possible to make sure there will never be Palestinian rights. There will never be Palestinian self-determination. If you're someone who believes in the two-state solution and says, ah, but he still uses those words, listen to what he's doing. Listen to, when, listen to him when he's not talking to the international community. Listen to him when he's speaking in Hebrew in a house in the West Bank. He's absolutely clear in his intention to make sure there is never a Palestinian state, there's never Palestinian self-determination, and Israel retains permanent control over the West Bank. That's what he's doing. So, you know, patting yourself on the back and saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not normalizing Khanis because I won't be with Ben-Gavir is, is incredibly weak. Thank you for all of that. So my last question for you then is, um, is there a, can you can you sum up or just offer the a, a, the, the, a takeaway for our audience? I mean, the, the the takeaway. I don't I don't want to be repetitive. I mean, we are where we are today because people chose not to see what was happening and they chose not to engage with what was happening. And I say this to someone who, in every every conversation now, ends up playing the really annoying role of Cassandra, warning people about what's happening, knowing that. People are just not going to take it in. They don't want to. And then when it does happen, it's going to be kind of like, well, it's not that bad and we can live with it or who could have known and it's too late to do anything anyway. You know, if you choose to disengage while you watch these things happening in Israel and by the way, in the United States, I mean, we're, we're in a moment now where the Supreme Court may or may not agree to hear to, to hear a case on boycotts and it's a case on boycotts of Israel. So most people are probably not paying attention because most people don't care about this issue. But if the Supreme Court takes this case and rules to uphold the arguments that have been, that, that's been the argument that's being appealed, what they in effect will be ruling is that boycotts of anything are not protected free speech. They will be undoing what was settled law since the civil rights era. And it will affect every issue that people care about. That's what's at stake. And, and that the fact that we're having this argument, potentially the Supreme Court, is because a lot of good people whose, whose comfort zone is violated by the idea of Palestinians standing up and saying, no, no, we're not going to just wait for negotiations. We're going we're gonna to go for the most widely accepted form of protest, which is boycotts. They say, we, no, we're going to stop you. And if in order to stop you, we have to take down the American, all Americans' right to protest with boycotts, we'll do it, which is just surreal. I say this as a, as a progressive American who grew up in a progressive Jewish home. It is surreal that's where we are today. It's surreal that right now we're seeing you, the Morningstar case, for folks who haven't watched, looked into it, you should. The Morningstar case is essentially the broad Jewish community saying, in order to prevent any scrutiny of Israeli practices by investors, we are willing to take down the entire, the entire concept that there should be rules on ethical investing for social reasons, governance reasons, human rights reasons, environmental reasons, none of those. If in order to prevent Israel from being caught in any screen that in any way challenges activities, particularly in the West Bank, we will take down the whole thing, so be it. And, 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 you know, when we get there, people look back and say, this is terrible. How do we get here? This is how you got here. And this is how you ended up with Kahanism alive and well and flourishing in Israel. And the last thing I want to say in terms of people thinking about this today, the American component in this cannot be ignored. Meyer Kahane was American. The leaders of the Kahanist movement in Israel came from the states to Israel. The funders came from Israel, from the U.S. The fundraising was done in the U.S. This is this is in many ways an American 
political stream brought into Israel where it found fertile ground for lots of reasons. But but the idea that Americans are now pulling at their hair saying, how did this happen? You know, shared values. You know, when people talk about shared values, looking at the situation in Israel today, they're not entirely wrong. They not be may not be your shared values, but they're somebody's shared values. And the unwillingness of Jewish Americans and of Congress and of successive presidents to grapple with this is how we got where we are today. That can be changed. If you want, be if you want better politicians, you better get out there and work for it. If you want better results, you better get out there and work for it. Pulling your hair out and saying, okay, well, I'm gonna draw a line in the sand and I won't talk to that guy. I guess boycotts are okay in some cases. Um, that, that, is, that is performative and it is, it, is, it, is, it is something you do so you can look in the mirror and feel better about yourself. It doesn't actually mean that you're doing anything to, to, to actually implement the values or defend the values that you say you hold. Great. Laura, thank you. You're welcome. I want to invite the audience to watch this space to, um, to hear more about all of the things that you just talked about and to look through our events index to see more on what we've done on Kahanism, on uh, the role of APAC and the United Democracy Project in the American elections, and, um, and also on all of these threats to our First Amendment rights, which you just articulated for us so clearly. So thank you so, so much. Thanks, Sarah Ann. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. You can visit our website, www.fmep.org, to subscribe to our many resources and to find today's podcast episode, along with links to additional resources about these topics. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, and I look forward to the next episode. Thanks for tuning in and take good care.